0: back to the uh, verses that uh, Brian's going to preach on in just a minute. So Luke 19, verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. And so just before Brian comes, I found this this reflection written by a minister from the Church of Scotland. In slow motion, the realm of God flickers across the balustrades of the temple Coins crash as the reign of God breaks in for everything up to now has just been introduction. This violence is the real thing and the blur of images. Tables hurled and a saviour spitting. Doves flapping and a redeemer shouting. Money flashing and the prince of peace reigning. It's the thin wedge that opens the door a door too big to keep things in and it all comes spilling out and it won't fit back in ever Father Brian comes to speak to us we pray that you'd open our hearts to hear what, he ha- what you have to say through him Lord fill him with your spirit now that he may speak your words Amen.
1: Can you hear me? Sorry. I I brought a, a really exciting PowerPoint for you, and saved it in a format that your computer can't read, and uh, so that's all surplus to requirements. I want to I want to ask you a question. You see, at the. At the head of this section in the NIV, it's got the cleansing of the temple. But I want to ask you a question whether this is the cleansing of the temple or whether actually something goes on from this point on which is about the cleansing of the temple. Because I think it's the latter, so I'll give you a heads up. The correct answer at this point is yes, Brian. Okay, otherwise I'll cry. But but you see, it seems to me that Luke does something in verse 45. He says, Jesus went into the temple. Jesus enters the temple. And then if you read from here, right through to the start of the Lord's Supper, over and over again, he repeats the phrase, Jesus was in the temple. Jesus was in the temple. Jesus was teaching in the temple. He's got lots of ways of saying it. I'm going to read them because I've put all these on screen. As I've typed them out, you might as well have the benefit of them because my typing took ages. So 19 verse 45, he entered the temple. 20 verse 1, one day he was teaching in the temple. 21 verse 1, as he looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts in the temple treasury. Now I suspect that the temple treasury, was no secret in this, was in the temple. 21 verse 5, some of the disciples remarked about the stones of the temple. As for what you see here, Jesus says. So here implies that they were seeing the stones and they were there in the temple. 21 verse 37, each day Jesus was teaching in the temple. 21 verse 38, and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at... Great, you're with me. Now I had at this point, I wanted to show you some very impressive pictures but uh, I can't do that because I broke the machine. So, what I can tell you is that on the 12th of November 2010, a chap called Alec Garrard, who I met, died. Alec was a, a farmer from Suffolk. And Alec got saved. Jesus came into his life and thoroughly changed him. And Alec became a Methodist. But for Alec, he suddenly he hadn't grown up as a Christian. So having met Jesus, he wanted to be baptised. And so he got baptised as a believer. And, uh, and somebody wisely told him that when he got baptised, everything that he took into the baptistry would become God's. And so Alec, who was a farmer but who had a bit of a nutty hobby took into the baptistry his nutty hobby, which was making models. And then Alec, because we're all like this, aren't we, as new Christians, he said, well, Lord, I'm, you know, I love making models. How can I serve your kingdom making models? And what he did over the next 25, 30 years was build the largest and most accurate model of Herod's Temple on the face of the planet and it's about 30 or 40 feet long. It's the size of this platform and a bit wider. It lives in a barn in a farm at Bungie, and he's painted the walls of the barn so that wherever you stand with your back to the temple, you see the skyline of the hills as you would see if you were in the temple in Jerusalem. It comes apart, and inside he's got all the subterranean rooms where all the animals were kept before they were slaughtered, There are three and a half thousand OO scale people on his model and every scene from the life of Jesus that takes place in the temple is depicted in his model. He went to Jerusalem and learnt Hebrew so that he could study for himself manuscripts to get the sizes and the things accurate. A farmer, an absolute passion, because the temple was really important Jesus comes into Jerusalem he could go anywhere in the city but he goes straight to the temple he doesn't pass go and he doesn't collect 200 pounds why does he go straight to the temple why is this so important because it's all location, location, location here The whole of the rest of this section of Luke's Gospel is all set in the temple. And there's something very important going on and we might miss it. You might miss the fact that Jesus um, was born in a place called Bethlehem. Do you know what the major industry is in Bethlehem? Sheep farming is what they do. And what they do is they raise sheep and in in that day and age you would raise sheep and you'd get a pretty good price if you could flog your sheep to the guys at the temple. So what you do is you drive your sheep up to Jerusalem and they'd flog them, buy them off you, they'd stick it in the rooms underneath and then people would buy them for their sacrifices, which is great. But there's a really important thing about a sheep that you're going to sacrifice. It's got to be good. It's got to be perfect. And you see, when you arrived, the priests would take your sheep, and they would make sure that your sheep was absolutely perfect. It had to be there; it was in the temple. They had to make sure it was great. Now, I imagine this in my in my weirdness as a sort of a sheep version of crafts. And so, the the guys would be bringing their sheep up, and and you know they'd be washing them and making sure the black bits were black and the white bits were white. and and making sure that they could get the best possible price off the priests knowing that the priests were also going to sell them and make a little bit of profit on the side Um, which is what Jesus gets cross about it's people having to change their money to be able to buy a sheep because you can't buy a sheep with your normal Israelite money that's not acceptable, you've got to buy it with temple money so there's a bit of a con going on there and you don't get a decent exchange rate because it's sort of two for one one for me and one for the temple. And Jesus, who's born in Bethlehem, who John calls the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world, comes into the temple and then spends days in the temple being tested just like a sheep for the slaughter. There's stuff going on here that we don't always see straight away. But who's doing the testing? Because as Jesus is there in the temple, he challenges the faith of the day in a number of ways. In chapter 20, verses 1 to 8, we've got that bit that's headed questions of his authority. And what's going on there is Jesus challenging the faith of the day and what he shows up is that it's very man-centred. The question is asked, by what authority, Jesus, do you do these things? And he says, well, hang on a sec, what about John? By what authority did John baptise people? Was that from God or was that from men? Now they've got a bit of trouble now, haven't they? Because if they say it's from God," and John has recognised Jesus as the Lamb of God, they, they sort of put themselves in a bit of a tricky position in relationship with Jesus. But if they say, well, it was from men, they're going to get it in the neck from all the people who have decided that John was definitely a prophet and spoke from God. And they bottle it. What happens is it's more important to them what people think And what God thinks. Jesus challenges the faith of the temple. He does it again. He challenges it in 20 verses 19 to 26. The issue about paying temple taxes. And what's the the problem here? The problem here is their faith had become legalistic. It was about doing the barest minimum to get by. Anybody here got sons? This is is like homework, isn't it? Boys doing homework, barest minimum. Girls doing homework, reams of it. So I'm told, I had sisters, I've only had boys. But it's interesting that when Jesus talks about the authority, we're told at the end of that section in verse 8, They had no answer. In this one, in verse 26, they became silent. Next, he challenges them about their understanding of Scripture. They question him about resurrection and marriage. You know, it's the funny story of there was this this boy married to this girl, and he died, so his brother married her, and he died. and, And you go on down through all the brothers. Whose wife will she be at the resurrection? And Jesus says, for goodness sake, He said, your faith is unbiblical. You're taking one little bit and blowing it out of all proportion. You need to understand this in the light of the whole of the counsel of God, not just this one little bit. And it says at the end of that section, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Chapter 20, verses 41 to 44 the challenge is about thoughtlessness, not considering your faith. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And there are blessings to that, as well as sadnesses. I never had the fun of a, a Christian youth group or Sunday school. Didn't, didn't have any of that. No nativity plays for me. None of, none of that stuff. But it also means that I didn't slide into my faith with a whole wheelbarrow full of stuff that my parents had given me that I hadn't tried on and what Jesus does here is he challenges them about their their what they've just taken on board and not really tested for themselves and I find that really encouraging Do you ever have odd questions about what you read and what you think about God? Do you do do that? It's it's all right to do that. Absolutely. If you read Psalm 88, best not to read late at night and without reading anything else after it because it is the gloomiest psalm in the whole of the psalms. Nothing good comes out of Psalm 88. It ends up with saying, darkness is my only friend. Life, Life is rubbish, then you die, sort of thing. It is not good... And all the way through it, the psalmist is very clear that God has done this to him. It's really not a psalm that ought to be in the Bible because this person is, is being far too honest with God. But actually, isn't that what, what following Jesus is really about? And Jesus challenges this. And then the last thing he challenges is the teacher of the law who should know better and he talks about them he does some he does some really difficult things doesn't he first of all he says that they're showy they're wearing fine clothes but bearing in mind that he makes the comparison with the widow and then he accuses them of being so up themselves that they are they have turned Everything on its head. The money coming into the temple was meant to pay for the widows and the orphans. It was the National Health Service of of its time. It was meant to look after them. And what they're doing is wearing fine robes, taking the seats at the highest table. And at one point he says, you are stealing the homes of the widows. How could this be? But you see, I said location, 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 didn't I? And so, if this is Jesus' critique of, of the faith of Israel at that time, and he centres this in the temple, I hear some other echoes going on here. Not least because Luke records that quote from Jeremiah chapter 7, doesn't he? About the you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves, thieves instead of a house of prayer. Well, if you go back to Jeremiah 7, that whole section is a similar situation to this. It's, it's a whole section that's looking at the faith of Israel and challenging it. Jeremiah is saying, this isn't right. This is, this is worthless religion. This is not true faith. And here we have Jesus turning up and doing the same thing. The cleansing of the temple isn't confined to these three verses that we've looked at tonight. Jesus comes in and there's a symbolic act and then he unpacks what it means to have a clean temple. And what it means to have a clean temple is to be more concerned with what God thinks about us than with what people think about us to be more concerned with pleasing God than with ticking off boxes of religious practice and orthodoxy. It means to be more concerned with understanding the whole of Scripture than magnifying one little verse and hanging on to that and hoping that I've got hold of enough. It means thinking through what my parents have told me, what my pastor has told me, what my small group leader has told me, and holding it together with all of the other stuff I know about God and asking him by his Holy Spirit to help me to make sense of it all, not just one little bit at a time. So that I end up with a mismatched jigsaw puzzle where there are more gaps than there are picture. And I am frightened to move outside of any of the firm bits of fixture because I'm scared of what might be in the gaps. And why is it important? Because Jesus says at the end of this section that not one single stone will be left on another. The third location, I think, is quite obviously my heart. It's replaced the temple because it's not about geographical location. It's about the place where we meet God, which was the temple at that time, but isn't anymore. When you and I are apart, we're Christians. When you and I are apart, we're children of God. We go off to our workplaces, colleges, schools, homes, all over the place, and we're ambassadors for the kingdom. But only when we're together are we church. When we're together, we're described as the bride of Christ, the body of Jesus. if we took those words and thought about them in the light of what Jesus says in the temple and about the temple, what would we hear him say about the centre point of our faith? How might he describe us in regards relig- religiosity and legalism? I once told a church meeting that we, uh, we've got this amount of money to give away in the church meeting tonight and uh, we've got some brothers and sisters who've got some ideas of where we might give it. So what they're going to do is they're going to each tell us what the, the cause they think we should give some of this money to and they're going to give us an idea of how much. But we're not going to make a decision tonight because I know that that it's not wise to introduce something to a church meeting that nobody knows about and then expect people to make a decision. We don't, get at, we don't make our best decisions when we're, when we're on the hop, do we? So what we generally do at our place is we talk about stuff and, and then we go away and then the next church meeting we come back with something nailed together as a sort of a, this, this is what we'll do, and then we vote on it. So we've had a chance in our small groups to talk about it, pray about it, argue about it, and ask our wives what we should do. So once we've done all of that, then we come to make a decision. So I said to them, "We're not, we're not going to make it. We're not going to do it tonight. But we're going to share. We're going, you know, next time." Well, anyway, the mood of the room was way ahead of me, and it was quite obvious. That everybody was quite prepared to write the check and put it in the post that night. So that's what we did. Somebody put their hand up. Brian, point of order. You said we weren't going to make a decision. The mood of the room. Religiosity. I've got to do the letter of the law, or do I do what the Spirit's saying? And it isn't always easy, is it? Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't give us a whole lot of rules and regulations? Wouldn't it have been easier if he did? Instead of saying things and telling us stories that we've got to try and interpret and keep reinterpreting in the light of the culture that we live in, where there are no longer people carrying wine in wineskins and and patching cloth. They just throw it away and buy a new pair of jeans with holes in already. I don't get it. But I want to take you to one little story that he tells in the temple that I think opens some of this up for us. He, He watches a widow put just a couple of coins in the offering And then he teaches about it and he never once says that she's good for what she does. He doesn't say, this is what you've got to be like, I want you all to be like this. That's not what he does out of that, is it? He just tells the story, compares what her offering cost her to what other people's offerings cost them and then leaves us with more questions then he's answered. I suspect that when he comes to clean your temple and mine, it won't be, it won't be a, a really neat and tidy job with a vax and a damp cloth. And I suspect that the violence that we see in the turning of the tables might happen in here for us. That, that he won't he won't come and throw the furniture around around her house, but he'll turn stuff over in my heart and yours, and in my mind and yours, and he'll put us into a place of extreme discomfort. I am really nice and holy. You can ask Sarah. Only, please do it whilst I'm with her and can manipulate her into giving you the correct answer. But I want to. This is this is the truth. A few weeks ago, I I um, I was a I I was on just about to leave my house. I had a mug of tea in my hand. I was about to open the door, and somebody rang my doorbell, and it was somebody delivering the bedding to our church from the night shelter, and I was really rude to them. Really rude. Sarah had worked until midnight because she does that on Mondays and Tuesdays. We don't get to bed till one o'clock in the morning on those nights. So Wednesday mornings, when we're not doing the night shelter, is a lay-in for us. That's the way our life is. You've got different lives, haven't you? Yours are all much tidier and neater. But but ours is a bit chaotic because we're both mad. And so what happened was I responded out of my grumpy gitness, which I've got quite a bit of left. Jesus is slowly cutting it out. Sarah's his main tool but it's, it's taking a lot longer than I expected when I got saved. And, and I responded out of that bit of me, and it was, a, it was one of those moments, if you could just suck the words back. The lady was about, well, she just rung my doorbell as I was about to open it from the other side, I had mug mugger tea in my hand, and I opened the door, and she said, oh, I was told to ring your doorbell, somebody told me to ring your doorbell, and, and I just said, well, I wish they hadn't. the violence in my heart since that day is ten times more upsetting to me than someone knocking a table over what is it for you that Jesus needs to tip over, throw down, clear out because If I want to be the person that Jesus wants me to be and achieve the stuff that Jesus wants me to achieve, then I have to enter into the cleansing of the temple willingly. Isn't that difficult? I know it's for my good. I do know that but it still hurts at times. The real violence that enables the cleansing of the temple was not the tipping over of the table. It was the being nailed to a cross. It was the laying down his life in our place. It was the being willing To be obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. And because of that, I don't know how yucky you all are, you might all be absolutely perfect, but I'm fairly yucky. And because of that, I am a child of God. And this is the good news. King Jesus comes into Jerusalem, comes into the temple, criticizes the heck out of it, and then makes himself the greatest ever sacrifice. Isn't that incredible? There's a lovely bit in one of Adrian Plassie's books where, um, I think it's a monk, he describes himself as being horrible. He describes himself in all the ways. And then he says, the problem I have is I just feel so forgiven. I just feel so forgiven. Will you let Jesus cleanse your temple? Will you join in with the cleaning process? And will you accept the fact that he's going to love you before the job's done. That, that actually, he loves you right now in the state of the temple, whatever it's like for you, and he's not going to love you more when it gets a bit neater. And even when it is completely finished and really immaculate, he's still not going to love you any more. And if you start off here and then you mess things up and you end up over here where I am, he's not going to love you any less. This is good news. Can I pray for you? And then we're going to sing a song and I apologise because it is a song that asks you to take a little step so if I give you a heads up now, you can, you can stand by to repel borders. The song says, I will offer up my life in spirit and truth. Now, I do know that this is one of those songs that we sing in faith rather than in triumph. Because we, we, we try, don't we? We are followers of Jesus. And, uh, and each time we trip up, he picks us up, dusts us off, and off we get again. So, so I want you, however you feel tonight, to know I'm not trying to manipulate you into some kind of emotional thing. It doesn't matter where you are, It's I will offer up my life such as it is. is written there, only it's, it won't appear on screen. We're going to pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he came as a king, he came as a priest, he came as a sacrifice, and he came for us. Father, I want to thank you that when he went into the temple, try as they might, they could find not a spot or blemish against him. And so when he went to the cross, he went as the perfect, spotless lamb of God. And that because he was spotless and perfect, his sacrifice was enough. And I thank you that because of that, we are free and clean and we stand before you forgiven and loved. And I know, Father, that we will get stuff wrong, but I pray that you would remind us of your grace. Help us to revel in how much you have loved us, how much you forgive us. And as we go into this Holy Week, Let us not go as those that go into the darkness and the depths, but as those that go seeing already the light at the end of the tunnel. Father God, thank you that your word does us good. Thank you for your love. And thank you that we belong to you. Amen.